Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, we're joined on the show by Dan Somer, a former analyst and research director at Gartner who now heads up Click's global market intelligence team. Dan is an expert in all things data, from competitive market landscape to deep customer insights. He is also our data trends guru, so he is here to look ahead to 2023 and explore the key industry themes that set to emerge in the next 12 months. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Dan. Thank you so much, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you have the distinct honor of being the very first repeat guest to Data Brilliant. That'll be the answer to a trivia question, I'm sure, coming up. So welcome back. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a great honor. I feel I feel very well about it. So as we get started, I think that one of the things that you really try to point out in your 2023 trends is that we find ourselves really in the middle of this perfect storm. It's political, it's social, it's economic. So what is the impact that this is having on technology and the professionals that are trying to implement technology strategies as we look forward? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, all you have to do is turn on the news and uh, the newsreel uh, is the same all over the world. It's about inflation. It's about interest rates. It's about conflicts. It's about isolationist tendencies. And I think a lot of this has to do with really an undercurrent of a changing world order and, and a very slow but constant deglobalization process. And Several books I've recently read are kind of confirming that. And as we're seeing this fragmentation of power, we're also seeing the fragmentation of data, right? Because they're very inter interrelated, where the data lies, the power lies, or vice versa. Uh, and as such, this is affecting us, not just on a daily level as we're watching the news, but also as data and technology professionals on a broader level. Uh, because it means that, for example, data and analytics expertise may be much harder to come by than it used to be. And so you it's a really interesting concept in a world where people are talking about globalization. You're talking about deglobalization. And you've introduced this concept that you call a multipolar world. What, what do you mean by a multipolar world? Well, it, it has some geopolitical uh, sort of uh, meanings, but it simply means that power is distributed among multiple different entities. So if we're starting on the geopolitical uh, vector, I mean, it can mean, for example, the rise of China uh, or within the EU, which used to be sort of speaking with one voice. Uh, now that the UK has pulled out of it, it's, it's another voice all of a sudden that's pulling in a slightly different direction. Or, of course, sadly, the expansionist ambitions from Russia as well. But in the tech world, it basically means that data, regulations, standards will be more fragmented than what they used to be. Uh, practically, it could mean that, like, for example, I spoke with a large international bank last week, and they have to keep some data locally. Uh, they have to keep it in different countries, uh, as well as some of it in the cloud, others on-premise, etc., and finally, it's also a function of uh, innovation, Joe, because 
we're seeing hyperconnectivity really happening right now through things like IPv6, 5.6G, and low-Earth orbits. Think uh, the partnership that Starlink has with T-Systems, for example. And to a lesser extent, but still an undercurrent of this trend of Web3 and distributed ledger, meaning that increasingly the data center will no longer be the center of your data. Instead, the edge becomes the center. And Gartner had a really interesting prediction here. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say that Gartner has a really interesting prediction that more than half of the data will be created outside of your data center. And this creates, I think, a really fascinating paradox because we've held together our uh, our our institutions and our and our data infrastructures and our data fabrics on this idea of standardization, and so we seem to be coming into a place where we have this decoupling of of different kinds of parts of our organizations and different parts of the world. The standards aren't the same, and at the same time, we're expected to do more with the data that's available, which is really creating this weird way in which we have to start to communicate in ways and maybe reestablish some of those patterns. So what what are you seeing that is that is happening in the world with respect to different standards and how people are trying to overcome those standard differences, where all this data is at the edge in kind of a standard-free, decoupled universe? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be the challenge, I think, uh, going forward. Uh, if we take China as an example, uh, we see practically that they are developing their own data stand, stand centers and, to your point, their own protocols, their own standards. Uh, we see that they have their own natural language ambitions. Uh, and hopefully they'll stay on the same internet, but some people are even speculating that there might be a, a splinternet uh, going on. Um, and they're still listed in the U.S. Chinese companies, but that might uh, perhaps change as well as we're going forward. And in the EU, we're, of course, also seeing some regulatory differences with the U.S. Cloud Act, uh, maybe not always the same as, as local regulations. And then in the industries, we have sort of different standards as well, like FedRAMP, HIPAA, TISACs for the manufacturing industry, etc. Um, so... This is really the challenge of, of how to do that. I mean, ironically, on one end, we have uh, microservices, we have APIs and, and sort of common standards across certain technology vectors, but then they could look completely different in this multipolar, fragmented world that we're in. And we just have to deal with, with that federation much better than we used to be able to. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know that in, in our world at Click, we are trying to... Uh, pick vendors and pick standards that we think are going to be, um, you know, be able to play across these different things. And you can see that there are certain vendors out in the marketplace, take a Snowflake, for instance, which is really trying to be the database uh, standard that can share across different platforms, different companies, etc. So you can see these companies that have these big ambitions at the same time that you have this big fragmentation happening. And I wonder if you can put your crystal ball on. We're, we're kind of in some respects in the same place that we were in 2008, the economy is starting to uh, erode. VC funding is starting to go away from some of these uh, startups. But you had these big companies that emerged from that, Airbnb and Uber, that were really kind of the darlings that continue to be strong players now. What what are you seeing that is that trend right now? Like, can you see what happens on the other end of this? Does this help us to sharpen our pencil on what good data and analytics companies look like coming up? Or what do you think happens next beyond, you know, the, the current um, economic turmoils that we're going through worldwide? 
I think what's old is new again in the cloud. Like you mentioned 2008, 2009. That was probably the period when like people were really rolling out their data warehouses, right? And then the whole Hadoop thing happened. And as sort of those data lakes and data warehouses started being built out, they created a bunch of adjacencies uh, and a number of sort of sub-market, if you like, like data quality, um, da- meta- data management, semantic layers. And all of those now, as we've moved to the cloud just in the last couple of years, and no one knows this better than you, Joe, um, that creates new adjacencies and new opportunities in the cloud. And quite frankly, right now we're seeing this wild west of companies in all of these subsectors, whether it's uh, sort of metrics management or, or metadata or um, data transformations, etc. cetera, uh, sometimes referred to as the, quote, modern data stack. And what I'm expecting, and if I'm looking into the crystal ball, especially with this squeeze from from VC funding, is that uh, some of them will be very successful, but uh, many of them, perhaps most of them, will disappear. Because on the demand side, Joe, and maybe you can confirm this, uh, CXOs don't want to work with a plethora of vendors. Uh, they want to work with platforms and they want to work with fewer vendors. And as such, I think we'll see a consolidation in the cloud as well, uh, where much of this capability will be absorbed or acquired by by larger platforms. I'll completely agree. And you can already start to see the power that the large cloud pl- platforms have to wield over some of these startup technologies. It is really to someone's advantage to try and figure out how to how to consume native AWS services, to consume native Azure GCP services, to for sure. And uh, and it's a really interesting time because the real innovation, it seems like people have started to develop these little niche companies in the hope of being gobbled up by these big giants, as opposed to trying to develop, a let's say, a big company that they think is going to take over the world. And it's an interesting time because I think you're right. It's um, the, those, those cloud platforms cast a really long shadow. They do. They do. And... Quite frankly, what what many of these small companies that specialize on one little niche, uh, they will be affected by the squeeze because they are VC funded to a large extent. So I think this might actually, we spoke about the skills shortage and things like that. Uh, I think we'll see a, a sort of a shift again from skills in the tech sector where everyone started their little sort of cottage startups, right, uh, to a lot of those skills moving back um, into the, the end user sector. You mentioned Airbnb and Uber. Many of these companies or many of the founders were working in, at, in end user organizations as builders, and they did some open source project or something interesting, and then they started their own company. Uh, I think as that squeeze is happening, a lot of that talent is going to shift back to the end user sector. Uh, if we go even further back to 1999 and 2000, and you were in a bar in San Francisco. Half of the people there were, you know, had their own startup. Uh, if you didn't, you were sort of not cool. Sometimes everyone has a startup, and it needs to be this kind of self-cleansing cycle, uh, which probably is good for the for the sector overall. Because CXOs don't want to speak to you know fifty-five different companies; they want to speak to three companies. 
So, so let's transition into your top 10 trends. And uh, so you've got uh, top 10 BI and data trends for 2023. And the first thing that you've done is you've divided them into two different categories. You say that there are going to be some trends that help us to calibrate the decision and a series of trends that are going to calibrate the integration. I wonder if you could explain what do those concepts mean and why did you create this distinction? Yeah, I mean... We, I mean, clearly, I think Ernst & Young said that 93% of organizations want to increase their spending in, in data and analytics. That's the best of times. But the worst of times is that 7 out of 10 executives say that they will be challenged uh, to meet all of the sort of tech expectations that they have because obviously everyone has limited budgets. Uh, so you have to kind of make prioritizations. And I made this distinction because uh, calibrating the decision – I think uh, ultimately that's what analytics is about. Uh, and we really see that um, operational effectiveness is perhaps more important than it's ever been, especially in, in tougher times. Uh, you are a retailer, for example, and you're seeing your costs increase for the, your raw materials perhaps. Or um, you, you can either choose to pass on all of those costs to, uh, to your customers or you can do it differently through basically improving your operational efficiencies uh, and calibrating the decision. If you can do that through, for example, automation um, thousands of times a day, uh, that will make in incremental changes, which on the whole will make very big changes, especially when you want to have more operational efficiencies. And then the other side of it is calibrating the integration. Um, and, I mean, Joe, you know, I mean, two years ago uh, during the pandemic, you had to, and many others had to basically accelerate digitization very, very quickly. And we moved uh, to the cloud, sometimes for innovation purposes and sometimes to keep the lights on. But what th this has created is a little bit of a chaotic tangle. Um, and especially with this fragmentation, which I described, the multipolarity, um, you really need to focus in on much more connected governance. And as such, you want to calibrate the integration. So because of these mega trends and because of the situation we're in, uh, pretty challenging times, I think those are the two kind of themes that you need to focus in on. And then you can sort of break it down into some trends in, in each area. So, so let's break down that decision. So uh, I'm going to rattle off some of your trends, then we'll do a little bit of a deep dive into each. So with respect to calibrating decision, you are talking about the number one, we want to make sure that we are dealing with real-time data and understanding how to put it to work. Number two, we want to make sure that we are making decisions at scale with velocity. So really about speed. So speed of data, speed of velocity. We're optimizing low code and high code, which is really about the making sure that people are able to um, deploy, you know, take action on those machine learning and data stories. So let's break that down a little bit. And let's start talking first about real time data. And you spend a lot of time talking about within this trend, how do we start to make sure that people have access to the right data, high quality data, so that they can actually start to make sure that these decisions make a difference. So what have you seen with respect to trends in data? And I'm sure I can, I'm happy to share what we've experienced that in our on our click site as well. Yeah, I would love for you to fill in. Um, the uh, the real-time data aspect is interesting because I think the infrastructure has been there for some time to do real-time. 
But in some cases, in some organizations, it's been a solution looking for a problem. Many organizations have said, well, we don't really need near real-time or real-time data. Well, I think in this world where we need to react very quickly, and in some cases what I call pre-act or almost anticipate and build scenarios and contingency plans for what will come up, you need to have very up-to-date information. And I think uh, what we really see now, and, and I'm sure you concur, in 2022 is uh, some compelling events like uh, the crisis in, in Ukraine, for example, and the supply chain shortages coming out of uh, factories in China being closed. So I think supply chain is that kind of killer app, if I may call it that, that is basically driving a lot of need for, for real-time information. And I think longer term, this hyperconnectivity that I briefly touched upon will open so many opportunities with more data that can be accessed at the edge. And there's a lot of opportunities that can be tapped there as well. So those are the two sort of uh, compelling applications of real time, which is driving that need. What do you see, Joe? I, I completely agree. I think that sometimes, you know, the most important thing is you have to have a clear path of what it is that you'd want. What decision would you want to make at a particular time? And I agree. An alert to a, um, a supply chain gap uh, or a problem with a port would be really meaningful to compel some action to do something different. So I used to work with a fellow by the name of Dave Reiner. Maybe Dave's listening somewhere and hopefully thankful that I'm calling him out. And he used to talk about this concept of a data latency spectrum. That if you want to close the books, you can have numbers by the month, and that's no problem. And you can have an architecture that supports that. If you want to make a trading decision, you need to go in microseconds. And there are a thousand things in between, right? So having an architecture that responds to the nature of the decision that needs to be made at the time is really important because there are cost implications to that to drive a specific action. It's not just about having good telemetry data. It's about clarity around the decisions that need to be made and the time frame in which they need to be made. So I completely agree. And I think that one of the things that's changed is we used to have, you know, streaming of simple uh, data. And now what you need is a streaming of a, of a decision construct, right? So you need to take the data, combine the data, transform the data so that you can start to understand the dynamics of what the decision is going to be so you can make a recommendation to somebody. Those are complex, right? So when someone goes into Netflix and says, um, I think you're going to watch this movie. It looks simple, but it's really complex. And there's a lot of dynamics that are happening under the covers to help with the, make that decision. And uh, and I think that's are, those are all kind of uh, constructs. Those are decisions that have a time frame that need to be made. And some of them, I think, especially in supply chain, healthcare, uh, et cetera, you need, you need to have that stuff happen in real time. And I guess I've pivoted into the second yeah. topic, which is really about decision velocity. So, um, you know, you're talking about making sure that people have clarity around the data that they're going to use in real time. What about decision velocity? Um, something similar in terms of like what you're seeing with respect to, you know, how people need to make decisions today as opposed to in a week or in a month? Yeah, I mean, I think you made a great point there, Joe, about pairing the data velocity with the decision velocity. And by the way, I really enjoyed your talk with, with Ray Wang uh, that you had a while back. So if uh, for the listeners, if you haven't listened to that, I, I highly suggest that. Ray Wang has been very passionate about this notion of, of decision velocity. And uh, yeah, pairing those is important and a huge opportunity. Uh, and the more kind of volume you have, uh, and the more repeatability you have and the more velocity you have for a decision, 
the more it kind of optimizes that opportunity to automate the decision. And that's why we see such a huge demand for things like robotic process automation, uh, process mining, application automation, where regular business users can just build their own chains of events. So there's that's really this uh, very big world of opportunity right now. But it's also worthwhile saying that there's a human component here as well. At the beginning, at the end of those chains of automation, you need humans to kind of uh, chaperone uh, the decisions. But also uh, another piece of data velocity, to your point, um, is that uh, you want to um, basically shorten that time from data to decision. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you can do that for – if you have thousands of employees in an organization, again, it goes to – incrementally, that's going to have a huge impact if people are more data-driven and they have more data velocity from data to action. uh, That will really sort of calibrate that decision in a big way. So one of your predictions in as part of this is the method by which you can get people focused on these things. And you're talking about the emergence of a chief decision officer, decision engineers. So, you know, we've been talking about... uh, CDOs and CDAOs as being the rage. Um, what do you think is going to happen with respect to the the roles that are helpful to help get a company focused on the nature of the decisions that they need to make? Maybe it's a maturity thing. Um, for a while, CIO was all the rage, right? Especially at the at the turn of the century, at the millennium, when everyone was implementing ERP systems and other systems. CIOs were like in the middle of the limelight. And of course, they still have a huge role. Uh, But we've seen uh, a lot of talk in recent years about the chief data and analytics officer. Uh, But ultimately, what you want to reach with uh, data and analytics is decisions. Um, So maybe it's a maturity thing when we have all of these tools at our disposal and we have decision velocity, decision accuracy – I'm sort of torn between is it the CIOs and the CAOs, CDOs that will move to become chief decision officers perhaps to kind of optimize decisions in an organization, both the automation but also the biggest and hairier problems? Or will it be a new skill set that's needed? Um, perhaps that you st- obviously you, you still have the CIOs uh, there in every organization. You still have the chief data officers and now it can be complemented with a, a chief decision officer. Um, that's that's kind of an interesting thing, which I'd love to hear your opinion. But in general, yeah, this is about taking charge about all of the silo decisions in an organization, making sure that you can automate where you can, but also solving those big, hairy problems across different departments and being really that kind of project manager for solving a decision with all of these different tools and different teams that you have. That's your goal, and then your your sort of uh, um, method is to bring together different tools and different people and different processes to solve those problems. Yeah, I think that the similarity of what you've described between the emergence of the CIO and the CDO is really fundamentally about alignment of cross-functional goals. Because anybody in sales can tell you that they want to know what the sales forecast is. And anybody in finance can tell you that they want to know what their bookings numbers are. But when it really comes to true derivation of value, you need to combine different data sets from different places. Those things require sophistication. And I think that the 
um, that the role of the chief data officer, the chief data and analytics officer is emerging more and more to be the chief storyteller to illuminate a path that helps the actual decision makers understand the art of the possible and have it not be so abstract. So I think most people still live in this world where, you know, they, um, they're watching sports on television that have AI that are you know, supported by AWS, and it's abstract. And so they need an understanding of what, how it can be specifically deployed in the context of their own businesses, based on patient diagnoses, based on market trends for interest rates that will affect how we make uh, investment decisions. And so some companies and some industries are very mature in that, but others need somebody to help them get together to understand that that uh, organization A's data would be incredibly valuable for making sure that that organization B can value. Getting people together and creating organizational constructs like a fusion team that really get people thinking along the same lines of solving these big hairy problems that they thought they couldn't solve before. So that's what I think about it. It's, you know, you have shared services that emerge when the when the the opportunity is there, but the alignment isn't there. And I think that's that's what we help to do is not necessarily help to make the decisions, but to help people who do make those decisions smarter and more capable and more um, actively searching a better way to make that decision. Very interesting. Yeah, I agree. So, all right, so let's transition. We've talked about calibrating the decision, the importance of storytelling and data. Let's start to talk about some of the integration trends. So there have been a lot of changes that have um, happened in this space with respect to terms. Everyone wants to talk about the data fabric. Everybody wants to talk about the cloud. So let's start to piece apart some of these integration trends that are going to um, affect you. So um, well, maybe we should start by saying, that you know, you've talked about this concept of connected governance here. So you have to have data, but you but technology is really you know a, an enabler. But fundamentally, you need the business to engage and govern the data that's there. So tell us a little bit more about how we're going to overcome some of the fragmentation in the in the context of of connected governance. Well, of course, let me bring up again that backdrop of, of multipolarity and fragmentation, uh, which we're challenged with. So uh, in many cases, you have to have data in different places, and it needs to look different. And of course, as we said, you, you had this dress rehearsal uh, two years ago in the pandemic, which means that you have an even bigger tangle and a Jackson Pollock painting sometimes I refer to. Sometimes your architecture looks a little bit like that. I do think that what's going on right now where like the areas of data management and analytics and AI and automation and like all of these kind of what used to be siloed technologies are increasingly sort of um, converged with one another. Uh, and that it will help some of the standards, uh, some of the different kind of APIs to be more harmonized with one another. And that's going to provide a lot of cross-pollination. On the uh, demand side, I think also as executives are moving away from this kind of Wild West that we described earlier uh, to uh, increasingly buying platforms, that will help those executives to basically uh, become better. And key technologies here for connected governance, which you mentioned, are things like change data capture, transformations, federation technologies, semantic layers, catalogs, metadata management. Anything that acts as connective tissue, and there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in these areas. Yeah, I think that that is even accelerated, at least in our estimation, by 
um, two two important contexts. And, and I think that we think about it, and I think many people think about it as an offensive versus defensive posture. So Davenport and, da- and uh, uh, Dalamule, um really talked about these concepts in their HR, HBR business review. But if we think about offensive nature, how do you catalog and make data available? Um, you need to be able to describe it, make it available, make it right, make it trustworthy so that data product is available. But on the defense, we're also starting to see regulations like GDPR in the US CCPA, different things that are around the protection of those data that are really important. And I have to say, I think many CDOs like me find that there's a weird, perverse a pleasure in that, if I can say that, in that we use the regulations as a way to do the, what, the things that we should have done in the first place. Like it, it seems like a no regret move mm-hmm. to organize and catalog one's data. But if the governments of the world tell us to do so, it creates a little bit of a stick that helps us out in our journey. Um, so what are you seeing in the regulatory world that is starting to drive some of these innovations in that way? Yeah, I mean, um, clearly we're seeing, as I mentioned earlier, the the conflicts between uh, European regulations, between UK regulations, between American regulations. Then on the industry side, we have different regulations as well, like HIPAA and FedRAMP, etc. Um, so all of this needs to be kind of harmonized and uh, to be able to do that, uh, I think that obviously you mentioned very quickly – uh, you need to have methodologies that are geared towards these distributed architectures, which are moving from a nice to have increasingly to an absolute must have because of all of those factors that we mentioned. So whether it's called mesh, fabric or data hubs, it's absolutely something that I'm sure you, Joe, are thinking about and many other organizations have to think about because this notion of having all of the data in one place is looking increasingly tough. And that, from a technological perspective, this idea of having something that is fundamentally decentralized, fundamentally under governance of different rules, um, has led people to start to examine the power of the data fabric. And you call out – you don't call it a data fabric. You call it an X fabric. And I wonder if you could explore – just let's define what you mean by X fabric and what you're seeing in terms of trends of people trying to deploy architectures that can support this kind of crazy hybrid environment we're living in. Yeah. I mean the reason I call it X fabric is put in something uh, where the X is, right? Because, yeah, as I said, I mean everyone's talking about the data fabric, which kind of is like this – uh, technology that provides some sort of a semantic layer, if you like, for data that's that's distributed. Uh, so, but we don't just need a fabric for data. We increasingly need a fabric for applications. Think about you. You briefly mentioned the low code, no code versus high code trend. Like every business technologist and even sometimes regular business users are now building applications. So how do you provide a fabric uh, for applications? Uh, You have BI tools. You have multiple dashboards, stories like you mentioned. How do you provide a fabric for those artifacts? Uh, I think Forrester calls it BI fabric, which is basically BI on BI. And then you want to have an algorithm fabric as well so that you have governance not just of the data but increasingly of the analytics as well. So I guess that's really the key here of not just having a data fabric thinking but an X fabric thinking for these other uh, analytical and other assets as well. 
but it's all about reuse. And, you know, uh, Joe, with your background as well, um, the importance of the catalog, uh, the common APIs that make it possible to have that modularity and composability between the different uh, artifacts. Um, that's really the key here. Uh, I guess with the ultimate long-term goal, and I hesitate to say it, but universal metadata, at least within your mm-hmm. organization, for the different artifacts is really that panacea that we want to strive towards. Yeah, this is uh, – I was actually going to go to the catalog with you on, on this journey. I'm glad you brought it up. You know, at the end of the day, um, we all in the data space want to have people take advantage of the assets that we're building. And you can't if you can't find them. And I'm reminded of a story. Years ago, I was doing some work at a pharmaceutical company, and they used to joke and say, we're pretty sure that we've already found the cure to cancer. We just lost it. And this idea of really being able to consistently capitalize on the work of others, right? In the open source world, we do this all the time. People release code, and they they can share it with each other. And then we go to work, and we don't share things with each other. And so I think that the the concept of the catalog is so critical as just a conceptual, creating a marketplace for how people can find and take advantage of things that other people have done. And what I actually suspect is going to happen over time is that there will be a way to monetize that so that you, you know, much in the way that people want to be compensated for their work, this is my data set. It costs $13 to access, right? And we can start to kind of figure out a way to to treat data analytics applications like products service them up, make them available. And that's that. You know, so at Click, we do that. We use our own catalog and we put together analytics assets. We put together algorithms. We put together data. We put them in front of people to use. And then we are spending a lot of time on the data literacy part, which is how do you make sure that the people that are on the other end of that screen can really capitalize on what they're seeing? And um, because if, if you don't have that capability, then you're really kind of stuck. You just have this uh, great assets at your disposal that no one knows how to use. Yeah, absolutely. And we are, it's interesting you mentioned we are eating our, our own dog food or champagne, drinking it sometimes. Right. Drinking our own champagne. <laughs> um, one of the other things that you call out is that you're starting to see that pipelines are going to involve uh, AI at a deeper level. So you're moving AI deeper into those data pipelines to automate some of these different acts. We talked about low code types of things, but you're 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 envisioning a world in which AI is really directing some of the menial things that we do, some of the low impact work. And we've talked a lot about kind of the concept of augmented intelligence and having technology make humans more human. But what are you seeing that is accelerating this idea of of causing AI to drive more workflow in the enterprise? Yeah, I think a lot of the AI augmentation, well, at least initially, was focused more at the end of the chain for end users. But now we have many more concepts around this notion of of augmenting the integration earlier in the pipeline. And again, I think convergence in this industry uh, that I spoke about earlier is providing synergies and cross-pollination. For example, to do a lot of smarts before you've even conceptually thought about building a dashboard through having, for example, algorithms just crawl the data and find things for you that you hadn't even thought of looking for. Uh, You don't even have a hypothesis for it. But there are other benefits as well, including anomaly detection, self-healing, just-in-time deployment, finding risky attributes. We spoke a lot about privacy and personally identifiable information. Uh, all of these are benefits that you can draw from having AI and smarts when you're doing the data integration and when you're doing the data management. 
And longer term, uh, we've had this perennial distribution between preparing data and analyzing the data. I think IDC says that for two decades, it's been 80% preparing the data and 20% analyzing the data. It doesn't have to be a bad thing as long as it's the same person doing it. There's a lot of value in preparing the data if you're also analyzing the data. But if we can flip that so that you're doing perhaps 20% preparing the data and 80% of actually analyzing and communicating and doing those data stories and actioning the data, that would also be a huge benefit. So I think all of these kind of AI capabilities that are coming earlier in the chain has a lot of upside. Such a great point. Um, I want to do a little bit of a commercial. Um, about tw- in 2012, uh, Tom Davenport and DJ Patil introduced what I think is one of the more important pieces of work in HBR called uh, Data Scientist, the Sexiest Job of the 21st Century. And um, they just published an updated version, a 10-year reflective on what they got right and what they got wrong. And one of the things that they call out is exactly this, the idea that there's these unicorn people that do these things when actually what they're doing is they're spending their time cleaning up the data. And uh, so it's it's not nearly as sexy as it could be, but rather it's turned into a little bit more of a team sport uh, with different kinds of roles providing different kinds of things. And I think that what you're suggesting here is that if we got really smart with AI, we could really capitalize on the value that data science can create by by getting rid of the nonsense to make them more productive more quickly. So Dan, we have covered a lot of ground around what can be overwhelming, right? New concepts in technology, new demands, a fragmented geopolitical situation, a fragmented uh, technological landscape, different countries vying for supremacy with different kinds of standards. And I think in some respects, people are looking for guidance about, well, how do I get started? How do I, how do I take these trends and start to apply them in a meaningful, practical way in the next you know, six to 12 months? So what, what advice would you give to companies who are looking at these trends and trying to make heads or tails of what they should do next? Okay, so we've covered a lot today. Uh, clearly, we're seeing an increasingly fragmented landscape because of this multipolarity that's happening in society and how it has a, that is affecting technology and also data and analytics professionals. As such, uh, we really do need to make crisis a core competence uh, because it seems to be perennial. You know, we had the dress rehearsal two years ago, and it's just been going on since then. So. Think about bucketing in uh, how to calibrate the decision and how to calibrate the integration to reach uh, that chaotic tangle that is out there, but also to improve operational efficiencies as much as possible. Uh, But it's not just about technology, of course. Uh, It's always about people, process, technology. And I would say don't boil the ocean. Look at what you have culturally communicate as much as you possibly can because people can be uneasy about uh, a lot of change management that's going on right now. Uh, So it's comforting if you can show in your communications that you have a plan and you have the technology and you have the upskilling methods to be able to handle all of the things that may be happening in a crisis. And then look at multiple incremental steps rather than one big bang. So, for example, uh, just calibrating and shortening the time to decision. Uh, If you can do that thousands 
of times to thousands of people, that's going to have a huge impact, even though each incremental change is small. So this is where data literacy becomes such a key thing that you can go after. And I actually think that that's the most important thing. How does one identify use cases that make a difference? Not a difference to an individual or an organization, but to your, really to your board, to your executive staff, um, because they have to move the needle. And I think that broad concepts around platforms and governance often fall flat because they feel vague. And to the extent that we can start to be very specific about supply chain initiatives or healthcare initiatives, financial incentives, employee attrition, customer attrition, these things are material. They need to have business sponsorship and they need to, you need to finish what you start. So as opposed to entertain broad notions about data fabrics, I think that you need to be a champion in your organization around how you're going to solve a specific discrete problem. And uh, I know at Click, we only focus on four things at a time. And we change those four things on an annualized basis. And we, we, we really allow business and technology people to lean in to these topics treat these data products as products. They have a product manager, they evolve over time, and they live until their useless usefulness is, is gone. And I think that that's the idea. Focus, get business engagement around a common objective, and block out the noise and the vagaries around what you're not doing. So Dan, um, how can our listeners find your research, your, your, your trends here, and how can they find out more about the work that you're doing and how you publish? I will introduce the trends for 2023 that we see uh, in a webinar on the 11th of January. So if you want to tune into that, uh, that would be very appreciated and hopefully you'll find it interesting. Uh, you can register on www.click.com slash trends 2023 and the webinar will air on the 11th of January. Uh, otherwise, just ping me on dan.sommer, S-O-M-M-E-R at click.com. And I'd love to start a dialogue and conversation about what you're seeing. What are the trends you're seeing? Uh, how are you solving and calibrating in a crisis? Fantastic, Dan. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Really insightful observations. Thank you very much, Joe. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Dan Somer is a former analyst and research director at Gartner, who now heads up Click's global market intelligence team. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Change is inevitable, and the data world is no exception. But every now and then, there are trends that create massive opportunity. And for data professionals, that time is now. Changing is introducing new opportunities to drive value for our businesses with new tools, new trends, new innovation opportunities. The challenge for us is to be ready. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization to discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time active intelligence analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data. Visit click.com. That's Q-L-I-K dot com.